please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to begin this morning with a quote from Mark Twain, an American author who's always so full of wit and wisdom, right? He, uh, okay, thanks, Kat. <laughs> Wrote a piece called Letters from the Earth. You may, you may not be whooping in just a second. Wait, wait, okay, just hold for that. All right, Mark Twain wrote, Life was not a valuable gift, but death was. Life was a fever dream made up of joys embittered by sorrows, pleasure poisoned by pain, a dream that was a nightmare confusion of spasmodic and fleeting delights, ecstasies, exultations, happinesses interspersed with long-drawn miseries, griefs, perils, horrors, disappointments, defeats, humiliations, and despairs, the heaviest curse devisable by divine ingenuity. But death was sweet, death was gentle, death was kind, death healed the bruised spirit, broken heart, and gave them rest, forgetfulness. Death was man's best friend. When man could endure life no longer, death came and set him free. Now what do you think, Kat? You think it was the end? I don't know. I don't know. This is after lots of success. Then he wrote this. So you're saying to yourself, why not start with a joke, right? Or maybe even just a poem, something pleasant. Well, I thought we'd climb down into the pit with Mark Twain for just a moment and talk about why we don't need to stay there. No one actually has to stay in that pit because the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection is the greatest reality. It is the greatest and most powerful truth. Last week we talked about a non-essential but divisive issue. This morning we're going to talk about the most essential, the most fundamental issue that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'd like for you to read with me in chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says this is first and foremost. Jesus died for our sins. Consistent with the scripture. This is what scripture promised. But he was also raised according to scripture. And then let let me remind you that there was proof. He appeared to person after person after person. In fact, at one point in time, he appeared to 500 people all at the same time, most of whom are still alive. That is, you could go and ask them. You could gather them together in a room, and they would affirm, no, we did not have a mass hallucination. We saw the resurrected Jesus. But Paul's point here in chapter 15 really is not to simply prove the resurrection or give evidence for the resurrection. Really, his main point is to show the relevance of the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so absolutely critical to our faith? Sir Robert Anderson, who was a police commissioner in London at the turn of the century, wrote this. He said, apart from the resurrection, the incarnation and the ministry would lose all their significance. Crucifixion would be but a martyrdom The cross, a symbol of the victory of death over life. By the resurrection, the crucified one was declared to be the Son of God with power. The great truth on which the Christian's faith is founded and to which his hope is anchored, it is the resurrection. I want you to continue reading with me, chapter 15 and verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection 
of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So you have uh, two uh, big problems. Actually, you probably have a lot more problems than that. We're only going to talk about two of your big ones this morning. Uh, Sin and death. Sin and death. Sin is a very archaic-sounding concept. It's uh, really not a popular one necessarily to speak about today. You can talk about uh, your, your weaknesses or your, your faults or you know, the other things that your parents did to you, right, that you get over through counseling and therapy, right? You can talk about those things, but uh, moral responsibility, sin, not so much, right? Yesterday, I was actually cruising around the Internet and, um, you know, the repository of, of all knowledge, and, and the nexus of, of wisdom and knowledge is Facebook, and so I, I came to Facebook and I found an entire Facebook page devoted to this discussion of sin. And, and this is how sin was defined. The original word sin means to miss. It doesn't mean to commit something wrong. It simply means to miss, to be absent. This is the only sin. And the only virtue, while you are doing something, you are fully alert. That's all that is needed. Nothing more. You need not change anything. That's sin. This person went back and they did a a Hebrew word study. But actually they missed the point because sin doesn't mean to miss. It means to miss the mark. And the mark is the perfect character of God. So sin is anything that you do or don't do. Or think or don't think or feel or don't feel that is inconsistent with the very character of God. The perfect holiness and righteousness of God. And it may be done on purpose or it might be done accidentally. And you are morally responsible because you are made in the image of God. You are a responsible creature. And that is sin. Things for which you have responsibility. Where you have not just been absent, but you've actually missed the mark. And the consequence of that is death. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So when do we get to turn the corner and start talking happy thoughts? I want you to just pause for just a minute, right? Because uh, diamonds are not displayed on beige cloth, right? Diamonds are displayed on black cloth. The black cloth is sin and death. The diamond is the resurrection. Sin and death. Death in biblical terms does not mean cessation or annihilation. It means separation. I want you to think back to uh, Adam's experience. God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you take that fruit and you eat, if you eat in rebellion against me, you say, no, I I can find life apart from you, God, my way, not yours. In the moment that you do that, you'll experience death. So you will surely die. And in that moment when they took that fruit, they did actually begin to die. First, they experienced spiritual death. That is the separation of life from God. Symbolized by the fact that they were cast out of the garden. So they didn't walk any longer with the Lord in the coolness of the day and enjoy perfect fellowship with God. Their spirit was not drawing life from the spirit of God. There was spiritual death. Separation from God. And because of that separation, man can't live in a healthy way separated from God, spiritually or physically. And so 
Adam and Eve began to die physically as well in that day. Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, our outer man is decaying. What an unpleasant description, right? The outer man is decaying. It doesn't matter if you put the vegetables in the right crisper drawer and the fruit in the right crisper drawer. It doesn't matter if you leave them there long enough, they will decay. I've tested it and proven it many times. And that's, that's what's happening to your body. Students, I've reminded you before, you are at the peak physically. See, this is how you, and humans peak quickly and then descend kind of slowly and gradually, right? It's just a slow slide. But you peak very quickly, 18 to 22, you're at your peak. I mean, some of you are about to graduate. You've, you've crested. You're, you're going, right? This is it. So slowly, you know, and more things ache and things, everything sags. And if your hair stays, it, it falls out, you know, it go, turns gray. It's just, I mean, it's just a, this slow slide, a descent. You are wearing out. Even your mind works slower. I decided this last year that I wanted to kind of relearn piano. I took lessons when I was a little kid and regretted stopping. And so I asked uh, Matt Morton, who's uh, you know, one of our pastors. Matt's a great piano player. So I said, you know, coach me a little bit. And so he bought me some books. And I began working on my own, teaching because I knew just enough. And at the same time, he put his 10-year-old daughter in piano lessons. So I went by their house the other day, and she sits down, you know, and she's like, okay, you know, we start at the same time, and I will never catch up, right? Because her brain is this wonderfully pliable organ that's just absorbing and learning, and both hands can be doing different things. She could probably be kicking stuff, and I mean, she could play the drums at the same time. It's amazing. I can't. Why? Because I've crested, right? I've crested. Spiritual death. Then physical death begins, a slow process, but an inevitable process, you will die. When I did college ministry, I did a lot more weddings than funerals. Now I do more funerals than weddings. Another sad fact, the day of your wedding is not guaranteed. The day of your funeral is guaranteed. Everyone will die. And the sad truth is, unless there's an intervention in this process, it will become permanent. But it's unnatural. right? Because everyone grows old and dies, we think it's natural, it's normal, but it's not natural. Death is, is, an, is an alien, that it's an, it's an intruder that is broken into human experience. It's not how God designed. And from time to time, you'll have a friend who gets really sick or someone who dies, and you say, you know, something's just not right. That doesn't set right with me. That's not how things are supposed to be. You know, as Pat mentioned earlier, we, we had someone very close to us this week lose someone they love dearly. And, you know, as a staff, we're going, oh, we hate death. I hate it. It's not right. It's wrong. But if there's not intervention in that process, death becomes permanent, people. You've heard of interventions, right? You've got a, got a friend who's making really stupid decisions, self-destructive decisions. So what do you do? You intervene. The gospel is God's intervention in our lives. The gospel, the cross, and the resurrection is God's intervention so that we will not have to die and live in death forever. Okay, now we can turn the corner. And now let's talk about the resurrection Read with me again, chapter 15 and verse 14. 
Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. Paul's going to make three points. First, resurrection replaces sin with perfect righteousness. Resurrection replaces sin with perfect righteousness. But notice, he starts in the negative. Verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain or empty. Your faith also is vain. That is, uh, not lacking in any meaningful substance. It's an empty faith. Verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That is, having no value. In other words, people, the cross is not the gospel. The cross and the resurrection is the gospel. It's not just the cross. Notice verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, but how do we know that God accepted that payment? Resurrection. Right? Resurrection is proof the payment was received. Uh, this past week, I went to the grocery store for our family, and I went kind of late at night. It had been a long day, and we were lacking a few things. I texted my wife on the way home. She said, yeah, pick up these items. So I went to the store uh, late enough you know, that they blocked one entrance, and there was just one line. So I couldn't gamble and play the deal and find the shortest line. Just one line, right? One line, one slow checker, one couple moving really slow. And so I just said, you know what, just... Enjoy the show. I mean, here we are. You know, we're, we're stuck in the slow-moving line. So there I was. I was waiting, and they put their stuff through, and the checker slowly scanned everything, got to the end, 38.19. Wife pulls out her card, zips it through, and checker says, you don't have enough money. See, it says 38.19, but your card only had $11 on it. It's 38.19, but you only had $11. She announced to, you know, there are four of us standing there and the whole thing. This lady doesn't have enough money. The cup, they don't have enough money to pay for it. What do you want to do? She says to him, what do, what do, you, what do you want to do about that, that you don't have enough money because it's 38.19 and you only have $11 on your card? What do you want to do? And, they, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a scene. You know, fortunately, it wasn't a huge number of people, but it's, Lady's getting kind of embarrassed and kind of shifting around. And she gets out her smartphone. She's trying to transfer some money real quick. And she goes, well, I just let this gentleman go through in front of us. And she goes, well, then I have to do whatever, you know, code blue. I don't know. I could, she had some code name for it, right? I got to do the, you know, the Bacchiati code. Is that what you want me to do? Yes. Uh, yeah, just let him go through. We've got a code blue, right, on the only line that's open, which all the employees know that couple can't pay. They don't have enough money to pay for their food, right? And so one worker comes over. He goes, can I help? She goes, no, I need a manager because they can't pay for their stuff, right? And so then the manager comes over. What's the problem here? They can't pay. See, it's thirty-eight nineteen, and they only have $11. They can't pay. And there was just for a moment, I, I want, for a moment, I thought about paying for their food, but I didn't have $38 worth of compassion in me. You know, I just, I didn't, wasn't quite there. And so... They backed out their stuff, right? And then I went through and kind of tried to joke it off with them. But the point was this. They selected all that food. They got all their food scanned. But they weren't allowed to walk out the door with the food. Because they didn't have a receipt that said, paid in full. I got to walk out with my food because I got a receipt that said, paid in full. There was adequate payment to pay for my food. They couldn't pay in full. So they couldn't leave with their food. 
The resurrection is the receipt that says, paid in full. Every sin, past, present, future, for every man and every woman and every child was paid in full at the cross. And we know it was paid in full because God raised Jesus from the dead. And he said, I accept that payment. In fact, the payment of Christ is more than adequate to cover absolutely every sin. The cross is absolutely wonderful and generous and gracious. Paid in full, people, all of your sins. And you know it because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, interestingly, it never says Jesus raised himself. It always says God raised Jesus. God says, my stamp of approval, he's out of the grave. He's out of the grave. Paul puts it like this in Romans 4. He says, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered over because of our transgressions, our sins. He was raised because of our justification. That is, right standing with God. Justification. You are declared right with God, not because of anything you have done, but because Jesus paid it all. And so when you believe, God looks at you and he sees the blood of Jesus Christ and he says, you're right with me. You're right with me. Payment accepted on your behalf. Praise God. Okay? There's nothing else that you need to do that you can add to it because Jesus paid it all. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and he says, He made him, that is the Father made Jesus. Jesus who knew no sin to actually become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God can actually look upon you and look past your sin because of the righteousness of Christ. Resurrection replaces sin with perfect righteousness. Second, resurrection replaces death with enduring life. Read with me in chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? What's going on here? Paul has just said, this is the the gospel, right? First First importance, that you also have believed. You believed it. You believed in death and the burial and resurrection. And what does it mean then that some of them were actually denying the resurrection? Well, remember in Paul's day, resurrection was a very unpopular idea, not unlike today. You go into your office and you start talking about people rising from the dead, <laughs> they're going to look at you a little funny. Well, in Paul's day, it was similar. There was a segment of the Jewish population, the Sadducees, very powerful politically. They deny the resurrection and angels and spirits, in other words, All of life was material life. This is it. Large segment of the Greek population believed that there was no life after death. Again, this is all that there is. There's a tombstone, actually, a very common tombstone that Paul's day read like this. I was not, I was, I am not. I am free from wishes. In fact, it was so common, it was normally just transcribed as uh, the initials in Latin. Just like R.I.P., rest in peace. Very common belief. Seneca once wrote, Death either annihilates us or strips us bare. If we are then released, there remains the better part after the burden has been withdrawn. In other words, what Seneca is saying is, it could be one of these two things. Either you're annihilated, this is the end, or as was more commonly believed, the body is evil and the spirit is good. So strip away the body and what's resurrected is just the good part, the spirit. Socrates was a little more confident in that position. He said the soul is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body as through prison bars. And so death is a release, as Mark Twain said, a good release 
So the spirit itself can be raised. Josephus, a Jewish general who wrote a history of the Jews for the Romans, was influenced by Roman and Greek thought. He said this, For it is death which gives liberty to the soul and permits it to depart to its own pure abode, there to be free from all calamity. But so long as it is imprisoned in a mortal body and tainted with all its miseries, it is, in sober truth, dead. Okay? Most likely, this is what the Corinthian believers were being tricked into. Bodily resurrection was a concept that was mocked. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 17, he's delivering the sermon on Mars Hill. They think when he talks about resurrection, he's talking about a God named resurrection. When they find out he's actually talking about people coming back to life, they mock and they sneer and they jeer and they make fun of him. Resurrection was not a popular thing to believe in, bodily resurrection. So probably the Corinthians are buying into this concept that there is a resurrection but it's just your spirit. And Paul says, no, no, no. You're missing the very, the very heart, the very essence of resurrection. It must be bodily. Hey, Jesus was raised bodily. Therefore, you will be raised bodily. And you need to be raised bodily because to be a human is to be bodily. Right? A, a disembodied human is an unnatural thing. It's called death. When God created Adam, he took dust from the earth and he made the physical being. Then he breathed the breath of life. And when the breath of life entered into the physical being, then he became a person, became a man. And so that is normal for humanity. And the earth that we will someday inherit and rule and reign with Jesus Christ is a physical earth. We need a body. So Jesus rose from the dead and you too will rise from the dead bodily. Notice what Paul says, chapter 15 In verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? (laughs) You fool. That's that's why I love Paul, right? (laughs) Gets to the point. What do you you really think, Paul? I think you're an idiot. (laughs) You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be in the future, but a bare grain perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, Paul's description of our current bodies is not very flattering, is it? It's dishonorable. It's weak, it's perishable, it's wearing out, it's unglorious. It's like a seed, actually. It's kind of like a gnarly seed that, what do you do? You just drop it in the ground. That's the best you can do with it. So that's, that's your body right now. But the body that you will receive is actually just like Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the prototype of what your body will become. Chapter 15, verse 49, he says, Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is Jesus. 
Or as he says in Philippians chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself, he will transform the body of our humble state, this gnarly seed, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Because of his power as ruler of the universe, he is going to subject your body to a transformation into a body just like his. So what was the body of Jesus like? Let me give you a few characteristics. First, it was a real body. Jesus was raised from the dead. He sat down with his disciples and he said, what do you have to eat? Let's eat. And he enjoyed the meal with them. And they touched him. Because he was real. Could he do things that were supernatural in this body? Well, absolutely. But it was still a real body. Remember, uh, the book of Job is actually uh, probably the first book that was ever written. It's the oldest book in the Bible. And even Job, writing the first book of the Bible, understood that resurrection is actually a bodily resurrection. It's a real resurrection. Chapter 19, he said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I will have a real body. And second, it'll be my body, right? John Updike said, make no mistake. If Jesus rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. This is it, people. A real bodily resurrection that is really you. When they saw Jesus... They saw Jesus. Right? On the Emmaus Road, he, he pulled the blinders down so he could teach them. But then he pulled the blinders back up and they realized, well, that was Jesus we were talking to. And then he showed up to them in the midst and he said, touch me. See, these are my scars. Put your hand right here and see that it is, what do he say? Really me. And you will be really you. You won't be absorbed into nothingness. You, your personality, you, your body, really resurrected. Third, it'll be an imperishable body. Chapter 15, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a a, a perishable body. That is a body that wears down and grows old and decays. But the body that will be raised is a body that is not subject to decay. It will not grow old. It will not decay. So you well, okay, so what exactly will I look like? How old will I be? I don't know. But you will be the best you. So I'm guessing it is that 18 to 22 time frame, right? <laughs> you at your absolute physical best as God designed you to be. Okay? Healthy, whole, and not growing old. Not subject to disease or despair or any such thing. The ideal you. Fourth, it'll be a glorious body. In the book of Exodus, uh, Moses goes in to spend some time with God, and when he comes out, what happens? He's literally glowing. It's, It's frightening for the people to behold because they're seeing, what, a reflection of God. In the presence of God, he begins to look like God. It's still Moses, and they know it's Moses, but it's spooky Moses. And so he pulls a veil over his face so as to not frighten them. C.S. Lewis says, you know, if we could see one another as we will someday be in the presence of God, he said, we probably would be tempted to fall down and worship. 
Because you will be beautiful. You will be glorious. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, it says the righteous will shine like the sun. Picture Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, They get a glimpse into eternity for just a moment and they say, wow, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is glorious. Later, Revelation chapter 1, John has a vision of Jesus glorified and he falls down at his feet and he says, this is beautiful. This is glorious. This is wonderful. This is the body that you will receive. A body of glory. It is an immortal body. In other words, it's a body that, that not only can't grow old, it's a body that can't die again. Romans chapter 6 says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He cannot die. And so you cannot die Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? It was a great day, wasn't it? And they celebrated. He was dead, now he's, he is alive. But then he died again, right? He, he was raised, but then he, he deteriorated, he decayed, he grow, grew older, and then he went back into the grave. Because that was just a, a temporary, as a resuscitation. It wasn't a resurrection. When you're resurrected, you will never die again. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus will take all of God's enemies and crush them. And we'll deliver them up to the Father, subject to the Father. And then he'll take that final enemy, which is death, our worst enemy, and he will crush death. He will curse the curse. And he will even take death and he will throw death into the lake of fire and death will be no more. You can never, ever die again. Ever. That's the body you receive. Resurrection replaces death with life that lasts forever. Imperishable, enduring, eternal life. Third, resurrection replaces futility with meaning and hope. Verse 30. Paul says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, Paul did not literally fight beasts at Ephesus. What he's talking about is his suffering for the gospel, right? He was stoned and imprisoned and beaten and shipwrecked. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was impoverished. All for the gospel. And he says, what's the point? Why bother to do that if this life is all there is? Rather, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the only logical thing to do if this life is all that there is. Let's get all that we can out of this life if this life is all that there is. In other words, without resurrection, life is futile. Without resurrection, life is is empty, and it, it demands to be filled with something, so people chase after all kinds of things. Without resurrection, life is frightening. Life is a fearful thing. Why? Because it is, in fact, so short and it is, in fact, so uncertain and that is extremely frightening. And so most people live in fear. Jack Kerouac once wrote, I am young now and can look upon my body and my soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon and later it will begin to disintegrate and then I shall die and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? Indeed, If this is it and you get 50 years, 60, 70, 80, how can you not live in fear if you think this is all that there is? And you know what? Uh, Fearful people make uh, stupid decisions, don't they? 
You ever heard of this thing called a midlife crisis? <laughs> Why is it a crisis? Well, it's a crisis because at some point somebody wakes up and they realize, oh my goodness, my time horizon has really shrunk. I'm, I'm at midlife. And usually uh, it happens actually not at midlife, but it happens around 50, which they don't realize that's not midlife. <laughs> that is not midlife, people. Um, most funerals are not for 100-year-old people. So people who have midlife crisis are a little slow anyway, right? And they, they wake up and they realize, oh man, life is halfway over, more than halfway over. And it, it's not been as full and as rich. I need to do something that makes me feel alive again. And often begin to make foolish decisions, sometimes kind of therapeutic decisions, right? They lose weight and eat well and exercise. Why? To, to extend that time horizon a year or two? To feel young again? Often they make decisions that are not wise, fo- really foolish decisions. I'm going to go out and, and date somebody way, 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 way younger so I can feel much, much, much younger, right? I'm going to buy a really fast sports car and no one will know that that's, that wind is actually blowing through a weave, that this, you know, they won't notice that because I will feel young, right? But you cannot turn back that clock. And it is a crisis if this is all there is to life. That is a crisis. It's a crisis you better solve. Fearful people make foolish decisions. But we don't live in fear. Because we can't reach midlife in this life if we have eternity. We can't. And so everything that we go through in life, there is meaning and there is purpose because we have eternity. Apostle Paul said, Therefore we do not lose heart, nor do we live in fear. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is actually being renewed and regenerated and getting better day by day. For momentary light affliction, and remember when Paul says momentary light affliction, he's talking about getting beaten and stoned, right? <laughs> Shipwrecked. Sleeping on the beach without a blanket. Horrible things. He said, well, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, this life, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We believe in eternal life. We believe that life lasts forever. And so Paul says, I can live for Jesus right now. And and any suffering that that entails, because I will live with Jesus forever. Read with me again, chapter 15, verse 54. Paul says, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not empty or in vain without meaning in the Lord, because you have eternity. As we close, I want you to turn back to the book of Isaiah with me. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. And I want to read a few verses from uh, the prophet Isaiah that talk about eternal life with God. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. Isaiah writes, 
the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord who commands the armies, he will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears away, wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So the salvation of God is not just the removal of some bad things in your life, some bad circumstances that you don't want. The salvation of God is the blessing of all that is good and all that you long for. And so eternity is pictured here as a banquet. God spreads a lavish banquet for all peoples. He lacks no resources. You don't have to cook. You don't have to clean up. You just sit at the table and enjoy. And you eat and you eat and you, and you drink and you fellowship and you bask in the fellowship with one another and with God for all of eternity. That, people, that's our hope. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is with Jesus forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be foolish people and set our hope in this life. Instead, Father, I pray that we would cling to the hope of the resurrection just as you raised Jesus as the first fruit that you too will raise us and that the body that you gave him be like the body that you will give us. And in a resurrected, glorified, imperishable, immortal body, perfected even in personality, in mind, in emotions, and will. We will enjoy you and enjoy one another forever. Father, set this as a hope, as the anchor of our soul. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week enjoying the resurrection. We'll see you next week.